1 Timothy chapter 2. If you listened last week, you'd be reminded that um, part of what we're doing is prepping to go into the book of the Gospel of Matthew for our next sermon series, but instead I'm doing kind of two one-off sermons uh, in preparation for the new building out front to help us think about life in the new building and uh, particularly in light of uh, a world with uh, COVID in it. So uh, last week we were in Psalm 27 and contemplating uh, the beauty of, of the presence of God. Now we're in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where we're going to contemplate um, kind of the purpose of the people of God. This is God's word written for you today. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable attire, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works." Let a woman learn quietly with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let us ask God's blessing on this passage. Certainly we need it. Lord, thank you that you speak in the reading of your word. And already we have heard from heaven, uh, even in my voice as I've read this, but now we pray that we would hear from heaven in the sermon. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. I'm sure some of you are familiar. It's one of my favorite books of all time, A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's a dark comedy out of Britain. Uh, an author named Douglas Adams, is, uh, he kind of ponders what life means uh, in light of the arrival of postmodernism. And it's again, fits my sense of humor as it is, again, fairly dark and somewhat intellectual and slightly cryptic in many cases. Uh, but he, he's kind of analyzing uh, what it means to be a human in a postmodern world. And what it means to try to find meaning and identity and what it means to try to live and to to exist in this place. And he tips his hand kind of near the end of the first book. Uh, There's an interchange, it's highlighted beautifully in the movie, uh, where the lead character, Arthur Dent, is talking with um, an alien whose name is Slardabart Fast, which is the best name ever uh, for a character. And uh, Arthur Dent is questioning what it means to be alive in the world today, and he just says something to the effect of it. It just feels like something's always out to get me. 
And Slardabart fast responds and goes, well, yeah, of course, that's general paranoia, and everybody has that in the universe. And that's what it means to be alive today. Instead, he offers forth a, a kind of a conundrum for Arthur Denon. He says, look, Arthur, so much of life today is marked by the choice between being right and being happy. And thus far, you've spent your entire life, in essence, trying to be right. It's now time to contemplate being happy. And the movie, it captures it beautifully because Arthur's like, oh, that's interesting. And right as it fades to black, it goes to the, you know, the end of the scene. You hear Arthur ask quietly, well, does it work? And Slarda Bartfast kind of snorts and goes, no, that's where it all falls apart. Douglas Adams is captured so beautifully in that, that one little interchange, what it means to be an unregenerate person living in a fallen world where you're, you're forced to this conundrum between being right and being happy, and both of them are elusive. It's a fool's choice. It's playing the shell game at a carnival. It's it's a choice that seems on the surface possible and true and right. But then when you look behind the scenes, it all breaks down. That's where it all falls apart. That's where it all breaks down. I think in many ways the coronavirus and the quarantine that has come with it has been a tremendous gift for the American culture. Now, whether or not we redeem that gift and use it, that's to be seen. But in essence, it's, it's showed us how much of a shell game it is. Where so much of American life has really been this kind of battle between trying to figure out, well, should I be right or should I be happy? And everybody not fully realizing that apart from Jesus, neither of those things exist. If pockets on the internet where trolls were fighting constantly back and forth saying, I'm right, no, I'm right, no, I'm right, and you could watch Twitter and it's just a pit of those attempting to proclaim truth at all costs. I love thinking about how my grandparents would have viewed the media, that, the entertainment that I enjoy. You think about what your grandparents would have thought about the movies that are popular today and tell me they would not have thought, man, here's a culture that's trying to make itself feel good at all costs, but it's not working. We're watching this kind of happen in essence worldwide, really, but our culture particularly has drunk from this false dichotomy and, and, and is falling apart because of it. Do I want to be right? Do I want to be happy? Are either of those things even possible? Is it a, a fool's game? I can't do any of it. What am I supposed to do? What Douglas Adams was getting at in his book, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and I think what uh, the coronavirus is exposing really in our culture is uh, the world today does not have a good answer for the question, what is life supposed to be like? That's really what it comes down to is we, we don't have a good answer, apart from the Bible, our culture doesn't have a good answer for the question, what is life supposed to be like? Again, am I supposed to be happy at all costs? Am I supposed to win at all costs? Am I, am I supposed to be rich at all costs? What is life 
supposed to be like. Last week, we looked at Psalm 27 and said, in essence, life is supposed to be like being with God. I mean, all the blessings and secondary helps are nice, but the the primary target of the Christian life is to be in the presence of God. And of course, the natural answer would be to say, well, that's great and all, but what does that look like today, practically? Thanks, Pastor. Uh, I appreciate that, but help me flesh it out. Well, God is much wiser than I am, and he's done that. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 is that exact thing where he's fleshing out what, what does it mean to spend a life in God's presence? What does life, what is life supposed, supposed to be like? Interestingly, here in uh, chapter 2, it's being answered specifically within the context of worship. Uh, This is a conversation that's taking place uh, inside uh, the church there, but specifically inside the arena of of worship together, what the body of Christ looks like kind of in this moment. Uh, We've gotten ourselves into trouble as a kind of larger church at points where some of the principles in here that were intended for worship have been kind of expanded maybe perhaps a bit too far. The first thing that I'd like to kind of jump in and, and highlight is the foundation of Christian meaning, the foundation of the Christian life, is Christ the mediator. All right, so in verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, it says, This is good, it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. And then verse 5, here is his kind of foundational principle. This is the thing that holds all of the Christian life together. For there is one God, and there's all kinds of Christians, and in between there is one mediator. One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. In this chapter, uh, Paul is using that word all um, in the sense of all kinds. Uh, That's how Greek works. You can use it the same way English does, where uh, you could say, um, how many people need to breathe? Well, everybody needs to breathe. Likewise, uh, uh, one of the elders could ask me, who is at worship this morning? And I would say, everybody's at worship. Did I mean every in the same sense there? Right? The first one, everybody, means all humans have to breathe here. Everybody, I meant we have a great crew at worship Sunday morning, and the people were here. Uh, That's what Paul's doing here. He's kind of using the word all in this kind of category sense. And so what he's highlighting is, look, there's one God. And there are all kinds of Christians. They come from different places. They come from different uh, times. They come from different languages. They come from different cultures. They come from different backgrounds. But the only thing that unites that one God and all of these various kinds of people is Christians. The one thing is Christ Jesus. It's not their culture, it's not their language. It's not their kind of personal identity. It's not whether they're left-handed or they're broken. It's none of those things. It's Christ that unites everyone together. He's the foundational principle. He's the foundational reality. And the reason being, and Paul highlights it here, is he doesn't just throw out Jesus as kind of some big-picture category that doesn't do anything. He highlights that Jesus is the mediator. He's the go-between. 
And what that means is that any access that Christians are going to have to God Almighty must go through Christ. There's only one way, and if we're going to use a really terrible illustration, and this is an awful illustration, I know that, but it would be the equivalent of saying uh, God only has one telephone line, and the line goes through Jesus. If you're going to talk to him, the only way you're getting there is through Christ. He's that foundational one. He's that foundational principle. He's the redeemer. He's the transformer. He's the one that forgives and unites. He's the ransom, the one who paid for sin. And it's because Jesus transforms his people and unites his people and regenerates his people that then there's a new kind of lifestyle that's able to come out of it. And the church runs into problems when we jump into lifestyle conversations prior to having Jesus as mediator conversations. Because what Paul's going to lay out for the Christian life here does not match our culture. In fact, actually, it's almost downright offensive. Not almost, it is downright offensive to our culture. What he's going to tell us the Christian life is supposed to look like, what he tells us what life itself is supposed to be, isn't going to match that choice between being right and being happy. It's not going to make me happy. None of these things on the surface at front, at least, will make my sinful flesh happy. Let's look at, we're going to four things really that uh, he lays out as life is supposed to be. First in verse 1, It's peaceful and quiet. This is intriguing. This is the part that, again, everybody quotes verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions. This is the command that you're supposed to pray for the the president. Doesn't matter who's president. Don't care. Uh, Honestly, not really important to me. Uh, You're supposed to pray for him. Right? Pray for Obama. Pray for Trump. Pray for whoever comes after him. Doesn't matter. Pray for him. The issue, though, is that Paul gives specific instruction on how we are to pray for them. We are to pray for them that they are equipped to lead in such a way that furthers the Christian life. And the American culture has been saying right on to that since about 1983. Right? We've had large Christian ministries all throughout our country that have been saying, look, our government is all about advancing the Christian cause. We need to get Christians into places of power. We need to get Christians in the, the face of, of entertainment, into the face of media. We need to get Christians everywhere. It's interesting. What's Paul's recommendation? Pray for kings and for all who are in high positions so that they would govern in such a way that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Depending on which translation you have, it may put tranquil there. Now, the words most likely probably are highlighting it a, a rightly ordered on the outside and rightly ordered on the inside of the person. And this is, I would actually suggest, a part that the American church has absolutely 100% missed. I would suggest humbly, since about 1983, we've been fighting to get Christians into greater positions of recognition, greater positions of, of, of fame. And it's intriguing. What, what's Paul's recommendation? Pray for President Trump that he would govern in such a way that Christians can lead quiet lives. 
lead peaceful lives. That we can follow God's law inside our hearts and follow God's law outside with our actions. And when Trump is done with his uh, service and the next president comes in to serve, we pray the same thing for that man or woman. That they would govern in such a way that we would be able to live quiet and peaceful lives. And I would humbly suggest this is something very different than what much of the world wants Christians to be or thinks we're supposed to be. We think we're supposed to be relevant or famous or powerful or important. And I think that last one is actually probably the one that gets us. This false idea that we somehow need to be important by the world's standards. Uh, theologian named D.G. Hart wrote a book a number of years ago. It was a collection of, um, I guess, uh, journal articles and magazine articles and everything. He's uh, writing about the church, and at the very end of it, he has a, a chapter in it called What Presbyterians Need to Learn from Lutherans. And uh, his assessment of the PCA, uh, ARP, OPC, kind of Presbyterians of our ilk in general, and he is one of us, he's an OPC pastor, uh, was that we have really our greatest weakness is that because of our pride, we have fallen in love with the idea of being important. And to hear about how much the PCA talks about itself wanting to transform the world and like we're God's send-all and be-all to changing the world. And the interesting thing, he again highlights us against conservative Lutherans. There are 375,000 uh, PCA uh, members right now. There are 3.75 million conservative Lutherans right now. Ten times as many, and they never talk about themselves that way. And he's like, look, they're ten times as big as we are, and they're very humble. We maybe perhaps ought to learn a little bit of this quiet, peaceful life and not being filled with such a great <coughs> sense of self-importance. I'll be honest, when I prepped for this sermon, this was the point that perhaps concerned me the most, largely because I, I think our culture feeds us the idea of self-importance so much that we don't even realize we have it. And so we can't even think about turning away from it because it's so incredibly foreign. A quiet and peaceful Life, well-ordered in obedience. Now that, again, is what uh, Daniel 1 is highlighting. That's why Robert picked that reading for us. Is what's Daniel doing? Again, confronted with the ambition of the world, you realize he had the fast track to advance his career to be one of the most powerful people on planet Earth. All he had to do was impress the king more than anybody else. And intriguingly, what did he do? <laughs> he says, no, instead, I'm just going to follow the Lord, and I'm going to eat according to his food laws. I don't want to eat uh, what was perhaps unclean food from the king's table. I'm just going to be obedient, and I don't really care. I don't really care what happens with my career. I don't really care if the king advances me. I'm preoccupied with obedience. And it's for this reason and really in connection with this new building that I wanted to kind of bring this out for us to contemplate is to think about really how easy it is for us to grow uh, puffed up with this sense of self-importance. Like we're anything special. (laughs) We're not. 
The Lord could replace us at any given moment, very easily. All it takes is a quick, uh, you know, cardiac arrest, a coronary, aneurysm. We're gone. Instead, contemplating living a life that is, is shaped around this piety, that's shaped around this obedience, so that we're well-ordered on the inside and well-ordered on the outside. Now, he doesn't stop with that prayer, okay? Prayer that uh, kings would lead in such a way that we're able to live this quiet and peaceful life. But not just quiet and peaceful, but now godly and dignified in every way. Now, older translations say pious and grave. Um, That's what they use instead of that dignified term. But again, a contrast to what our world has to offer. Our world is saying that you're supposed to be filling your life with the the pursuit of pleasure, that you're filling your life with the pursuit of, of, of importance, filling your life with all of the things that make you feel good or, or make you, um, you know, something in somebody's eyes. And it's intriguing that the second kind of caveat here for what life is supposed to be, it's, it's filled with quiet piety and in a way that creates dignity, in a way that, that brings about honor to God but creates, you know, makes a man or a woman respectable. I have a great hobby, a great love for people watching. I love traveling. I love airports. Airports are fantastic. My roommates and I used to go uh, in college. We'd go down the backside of the mountain at Covenant to go to the Walmart in North Georgia because the people watching was just marvelous. Um, You just couldn't get any better. Uh, Vacation, I always spend a little bit of it, at least just people watching and kind of uh, honestly trying to figure out what kind of pastoral counseling they need just by how they carry themselves, truthfully. I can honestly say, though, that if last decade, in my own assessment, it seems like this idea of dignity in America is dying a very quick death. (laughs) The idea of living a life in such a way that... uh, People just kind of cultivate respect by how they conduct themselves. It's dying a very, very quick death. Instead, what's being held for here is uh, a person of of such humble piety, of, of quiet obedience, who loves God and is quick to obey his law and do it in such a way that <clears throat> they garner respect of, of, of everyone. Now, for those that don't know, uh, J.I. Packer, um, J.I. Packer is one of, uh, he's an Anglican, uh, one of the great minds in Christendom in the 20th century, and J.I. Packer uh, passed away a couple days ago. Uh, I think he was 93, uh, and tremendous man of God, tremendous man of God, but it's intriguing reading all of kind of the eulogies and the articles and the, you know, people just contemplating this man. If They say that... Uh, he modeled this humble dignity in such a way that everybody that was around him just wanted to love Jesus more. He just garnered respect everywhere he went, and people just longed to love Jesus more. And again, I would suggest this is in contrast to our current culture, which is, again, trying to tell you to to be whatever you want to be, to live however you want to live, to make the decisions. Nobody else can tell you who you are and how you are. And instead to say, no, God tells me who I am. 
His word tells me how I'm supposed to be. You could easily take this verse and twist it and go wrong, couldn't you? You could say, look, our life is supposed to be quiet and peaceful and godly and dignified, and therefore I'm going to mind my own business and I'm not going to deal with all those crazy heathens out there. I'm just going to live my own little life and they'll head to hell and I'll head to heaven and we'll be all right. The issue is that's actually not what God says. <laughs> that's where he transitions into verse 3 and saying it's good and pleasing that you live in such a way. It's right and it's true that you live in such a way, but the purpose connected to those things is also evangelism. It's the Lord's desire that all kinds of people come to know him. Read church history, some of the most amazing stories of how people came to know him from lands that you would never have guessed, from people groups that you would never have guessed, from pagans that you would never have guessed, like us. You would never have guessed. And so this church that's busy leading a quiet and peaceful life, a a church that's filled with obedience and dignity, is a church that's also actively practicing evangelism. Quietly, subtly, with their heads down, not garnering uh, the, the notice of the nation at large, trying to bring people in to gather and perfect the saints. It looks like talking to your neighbors and seeing if they have a church to worship at. That person that you, you know, meet at the coffee shop that always takes your order, that you've got that good rapport with, seeing if they're in a church home, if they have a, a sense of meaning in their life, seeing your neighbor, how you can help them and assist them and encourage them and invite them in to be a part of the body of Christ. It doesn't have to be some grand over-the-top, ludicrously big thing. Again, I've I've said we uh, in America here have a hero complex. We've fallen in love with the kind of fantasy novel where the hero does the one great and grand gesture that wins the day. Whether it's a prince or princess, doesn't matter. He or she does the marvelous, wonderful, great deed, and that's the big thing that wins it all and that changes their life. And the problem is that's not how God has designed reality to work most of the time. In fact, the people that he praises the most through the scriptures are those that are humble and faithful in and out day after day after day after day. I would suggest our evangelism ought to be the same. Instead of looking for the home run shot where we get this kind of crazy over the top big, just talk to your people. The people that you interact with, just talk to them. Invite them to church. Hey, you got a church home? Bring them in. Let them hear the word of God. Lastly, yes, I am going to tackle the rest of the chapter in four minutes. Perhaps one of the most complicated paragraphs for our current postmodern culture where, to quote Lou Reed, uh, back from the 60s, boys will be girls and girls will be boys. It's a mixed up, muddled up, messed up world. Uh, our world is said, in essence, be what you want to be and nobody can tell you anything otherwise. And God would say, you're absolutely 100% dead wrong. 
You're supposed to be who I've told you to be. And the interesting thing in verses 8 through the end of the chapter, what he's laying out there is this charge for the people of God to say, embrace the calling that God has given you. Specifically here, connected to your gender, embrace the calling that God has given you. He's made you a certain way. To live this quiet and godly life in your home and in your community, you're supposed to be evangelizing those in and around you. And now here, actually embrace the specific format of what that's supposed to look like. Men, part of that looks like being a leader. Interestingly, Paul does not define leadership the way that our world does. Right? Our world defines it in the sense of ambition or, or one who, who you know, breaks ground and runs over people if they have to. It's interesting what does Paul say here, verse 8. I desire that in every place the men should lead. How are they to lead? They are to lead in prayer and they are to lead in gentleness and peace. That men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Men, boys, little ones, our target in life, because Jesus changes his people, transform them, we are to be the leaders in this church and in our families, and our target goal for leadership is gentleness and peace. Again, think about the contrast that offers with the world today. It's not what they're going to tell you leadership is. It is for us leadership and prayer and gentleness and in peace. Ladies, he offers here for you a different challenge. And again, this is within the context of worship. His task for you specifically is humility. Already, I lost you all, right? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Making fun of our culture, right? The fact that I would, oh no, the Bible would tell women to be humble. Well, worse yet, in fact, actually, he tells you what that humility looks like is specifically and within a couple of realms here uh, in that it's not leadership, it's following. It's humility in its attire in what you wear, how you dress your body is to be done in humility uh, and in the attitude of meekness. What he's calling men and women to is, is godliness, even weirdly enough, specifically connected to gender. That you're highlighting an aspect of the character of God. And if you haven't thought about it, I would just lovingly put it this way. There is an aspect, an element here that men are called to replicate Christ in a unique and specific way. And women are called to replicate the Spirit in a unique and special way. Y'all are modeling the humility of God who is the Spirit. We're modeling the Prince of Peace, leading with gentleness and kindness. Neither of these are demeaning tasks for their their character of God. But again, I would lovingly suggest, what's the world going to tell us? This is the sermon that I get hate mail from people in other parts of the world. I can't believe you would say that about women. Look, this is what God is calling us to be. Because here's the reality, and I'll end with this very quick uh, assessment of it. Douglas Adams is, I appreciate, honest. 
in saying, I'd rather be happy than right. The problem is, it never really works out. The world has demonstrated a pattern of attempting to be right and offering what it means to be true, and it's failed and failed and failed, and then offering forward what it means to be happy, and it's intriguing. Every study ever right now is showing people are so much less happy than they have ever been. More resources than human history. The richest people of all time are unhappy, particularly women. Right? They had to stop doing all the studies that tested women's happiness because they're so unhappy and couldn't show that anymore. God's telling us what we're designed to be. He's telling us how we're designed to function. And he's saying, look, if, if Christ is your foundation, if Christ is the one who is providing the fuel for holy living, this is what your life is to be preoccupied with. And I'm going to humbly suggest that for this church, should we wish to gather and perfect the saints and participate in that task, this needs to be our target. Of people who are in love with Christ Jesus and transformed by him. A people that are pursuing a quiet and peaceful life. A people that are cultivate, cultivating dignity and godliness. People who are practicing ordinary evangelism. And people who are working out godliness according to our calling, according to our gender. And I suspect that if we go this route, we won't be finding ourselves saying, eh, that happiness thing just doesn't work out that well. Not saying it'll always be easy. Certainly that's not the case. But the Lord's designed this user's manual to tell us how we're supposed to be. The world's telling us too, but they're doing a very bad job of it. And so may it be that we would choose to listen to God's word instead of our word. Yet again, let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your truth. It is the truth, for you are true. And we f- confess our sins to you. Uh, quiet and peacefulness are not things that Americans are known for cultivating. The rest of the world makes fun of us for being loud and obnoxious and busy. And they're right. Dignity and godliness are things that are, in many ways, considered to be shameful today. Much less the idea of an ordinary evangelism or even worse yet, living according, godliness according to our various callings, even our gender. To say that you have set two genders, that two sexes, men and women, is odious in our culture right now. And so we pray, O Lord, that we would not be preoccupied with pleasing the culture, but instead that we'd be preoccupied with pleasing you. Shape us more and more into the image of Christ, we pray. Amen.